Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors for the journal Global Summetry. Just recently, Toronto had the great pleasure of hosting the 60th annual International Studies Association meetings. Many of my colleagues traveled from around the world uh, to uh, include themselves or be involved in a whole series of panels and roundtables. I could not resist uh, the opportunity to try and bring together some of my colleagues for a group podcast. So let me introduce uh, the folks who were involved in this. There was a Bruce Gentleson, who is the professor of political uh, of public policy and political science at Duke University. His most recent work, The Peacemaker. Corey Shockey, the deputy director general of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, who had previously been a research fellow at Stanford University and the Hoover Institution. She did a great book on civil-military relations with the former uh, Secretary of Defense, James Mattis, and most recently has had an extended essay, America versus the West, published. In addition, we had Arthur Stein, Professor of Political Science at the University of California at Los Angeles, who spent uh, a good part of his career examining international relations and in particular why uh, nations cooperate, which in fact is a title of one of his books. And uh, lastly, but not least, of course, Eve Tiberjan, who is the executive director of the University of British Columbia's China Council, and he's also a professor of political science at the University of British Columbia as well. He has written a great deal on China and Japan, and in particular their involvement in global governance and uh, the G20 as well. He and I have had the good fortune, along with our colleague from the Brookings Institution, Colin Bradford, to examine uh, closely the issues of social cohesion, um, global governance, and uh, good politics. So let's turn to my colleagues, and I'll introduce them briefly, and then we'll get into a great discussion on uh, the future of the liberal order. So I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> pleased to be able to welcome uh, for our first uh, group podcast uh, my compatriots from a variety of settings. Uh, let me introduce them to you. Um, Arthur Stein from UCLA. Hi there. Mm-hmm. Corey Shockey from IISD. IISS. IISS. Oh, yeah, not the D. The D is in Geneva. IISS. Uh, but good to have you here, Corey. Uh, Bruce Gentleson from Duke University. Hello. Uh, and Eve Tiberjan from the University of British Columbia. Hello, everyone. <laughs> so, uh, in today's podcast, I'm interested in understanding the impact of our good friend Donald Trump on the liberal international order and what comes after Trump leaves. You know, will there be an international order? And if there will be, uh, what will it look like? Uh, what will be the state of American foreign policy at that point? 
what will be its, its principal goals, behaviors, etc. So let's begin actually with a um, quote from a good colleague of ours, Stephen Walt. Uh, Walt recently wrote uh, The Hell of Good Intentions, American Foreign Policy Elite and the Decline of U.S. Primacy. He suggested that Trump's criticism of U.S. foreign policy, at least during the 2016 campaign, were justified. What he said was, the answer, unfortunately, is yes, this is uh, Stephen writing, because most of the problems afflicting U.S. foreign policy are the result of conscious choices rather than the unpredictable acts of fate. As he argued, today's foreign policy community, that is the community of foreign policy um, experts and the American intelligence community in Washington, sometimes affectionately or not called the blob, uh, still exhibits a striking consensus in favor of trying to run the world. So, what do you think? Is this the way Washington continues to be? So I'll take a swing at Steve, uh, <laughs> because he concludes that there's an elaborate and wildly effective conspiracy of foreign policy experts who keep trapping American presidents into policies they don't want to follow, and it's a disaster for the country. And he doesn't at all, in the entirety of the book, The Hell of Good Intentions, or in any talk I've ever heard him give on any subject, admit of the possibility that the alternative uh, ought to be considered. Namely, that maybe, just maybe, that when elected leaders are responsible for the prosperity and well-being of the American public, those traditional foreign policy views that have governed the United States' engagement with the world since 1946 or so, look reasonable, look cost-effective, look better than the alternatives that Steve has for 25 years been propagating. Hmm. Any thoughts? Bruce? So, um, I think, um, let me you know, talk a little bit about the way that Steve Wall puts it, but more generally get into, I think, what you're using the quote to illustrate and just make two points, um, you know, for now to keep the discussion going. So one, I think, is th there's been a tendency to look back at the Cold War and the post-World War II period with rose-colored history, mm -hmm. right? We won, they lost, uh, that's all I really need to know. And I think that if you really want to draw lessons, you know, you have to sort of dig a little deeper, you know. So one pattern that, from my perspective, emerges is, um, you know, when you look at the at the original George Kennan formulation of containing the Soviet Union, uh, that worked, and largely along the lines that Kennan had had forecast, right? Long and vigilant contradictions of the system setting of their own system setting it. Uh, Kennan also, by the way, uh, you know, when, when NSC 68 and other policies in the 1950s, when, when containment got militarized and globalized, Kennan both resigned the position of the State Department and said no. And indeed, I would argue, too, that the contrast is many of the U.S. policies in the so-called third world at the time uh, were not successful. Many were, were tragic failures and the like. And so both lessons carry forward. But the second point, so as we, as we think about what, you know, the critique is, you know, you know, Steve's not totally wrong, but he's a little too sweeping, right? Mm -hmm. In some ways, he's the mirror image of the people that say everything was great, right? And, and they kind of... The other point, I think, is, is this question of, you know, w you know, what is the world like? I mean, I have to say that in 2016, and, you know, I was chairing one of Hillary Clinton's uh, foreign policy, you know, working groups, mm -hmm. 
um, occasionally, quietly, would say, you know, some of the questions that that Trump is asking are the right questions, right? Uh, the way he's asking, the reasons he's asking him, and the answers he's giving are not right. But the notion that we could talk about leadership in all our speeches, that's great. But that the core question the United States was facing, you know, and the strategies we needed, given how much change had happened in the world, really needed to be, you know, opened up and rethought. And so the notion that somehow the liberal order was working so well and Donald Trump came with a bulldozer and knocked it down, you can talk more about this. That really misses the ways that Trump was an effect, not just cause, the way that the Brexit vote was an effect, not just cause, and that the issues would have been there if Remain had won and, 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 and Trump had, you know, had, had lost. So, um, so I think that's, you know, anyway, that's my response for, for starters. Any final thoughts on that? I, go ahead. Do you have some thoughts? The, the key, I think, to address uh, Walt's book is to really unpack, because he, he, he mixes up things that are completely independent. Uh, so first is the bedrock of the, the post-war order in terms of on one hand, democracy, etc., democracy promotion. On the other hand, global economic institutions. That also accelerates with globalization, accelerating post-1990. So in turn, that would lead to some social tension. But that's one piece. Then there is the Iraq war. And for him, he mixes it. He says that this, the Iraq war is the same, is part of the same whole. But in fact, it's really uh, something that's quite aberrant, right? That, that was open only because of 9-11. Normally, the system would not have allowed that to happen. Because we know with hindsight that this is a moment where there's no more gravity in, in American politics. You can't oppose it even at the time. The media is embedded. It's a weird moment. Uh, and that leads to a lot of tragedy all the way to ISIS. So that's on itself. And then the third piece is dealing with rising power, particularly China. But between 2000 and 2018, 20% of world GDP shifts toward emerging powers. That leads to a whole bunch of dynamics, including how to deal with it, right? And and then the U.S. has to deal with this relative rise. You know, the U.S. is not declining, but it's, you know, the others are rising, particularly China. And there is some reflexes there that are you know, sometimes opening the door, sometimes closing a door, and that leads to tension. So this is something separate. Uh, and, that has, and then there is the management of NATO expansion and the relation with right. Russia, which is itself independent. So I think we need to unpack the pieces to sure. make sense. Well, and we will come mm-hmm. back to talk about, mm-hmm. uh, about China because... Mm-hmm. I know uh, you and Corey Eve, have differing perspectives on China, and I suspect others do as well. But, so we'll come back to that. But let me just carry on a little bit with our good friend, uh, President Trump. And this is actually a, a question that Arthur posed to me that he particularly wanted Corey to respond to. Um, uh, and <laughs> so when it comes, Arthur in effect asked when it comes to the current complaints about President Trump and the liberal international order much of what Trump has argued fails to make him particularly different to other recent presidents right so Trump's complaints are, uh, are often ones voiced by earlier presidents Allies not doing enough, particularly if we look at the question of military spending. Uh, President Obama and his administration was very negative about how much was being spent on NATO, for example, and urging them to, to spend more. Trading partners pursuing mercantilist policies, well, that's hardly news within the international trading system. Um, you know, China has pursued its own mercantilist policies. The EU has, at different times, state subsidy questions remain a huge issue in the European Union. So there's, you know, lots of others doing similar kinds of things. 
maybe not using the policies that we haven't seen used in decades, but leaving that aside, the you know, Merkel's policies are not somehow new. Um, and, um, and his policies on others, uh, other presidents have taken as well, trying to protect autos and steel. It's been an issue for other presidents as well. Withdrawing from international environmental agreements, the Kyoto Agreement, which uh, the United States uh, withdrew from. Um, abrogating arms control agreements, the ABM Treaty, uh, which was revoked in 2001 by the uh, American president, and more, and now recently, obviously, the INF and the Iran nuclear deal, uh, all apiece. But so the question is what makes Trump so fundamentally different? Because in policy terms, it doesn't seem way off the map in terms of other presidents. So I love Art's mischievous question, and I will answer only if he answers after I do, because I want to hear his thoughts on it. Um, so I agree with you that there are elements of continuity in President Trump's policy. Uh, since I sailed on the pirate ship McCain in the 2008 election, I can tell you that President Obama, candidate Obama, argued that NAFTA needed to be overturned. Uh, Hillary Clinton talked absolute nonsense about trade policy in the 2016 election. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Dwight Eisenhower would be shocked that we still have troops in Europe when mm -hmm. Europe is easily prosperous and strong enough to manage its own problems. So there are elements of continuity. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree with that. I also agree with two other things that I think are components of Art's mischievous question. <laughs> One is that um, the United States has always been a reluctant internationalist. It's always been a reluctant multilateralist. Mm. It's always been a reluctant signatory of treaties. What's different about the post-1945 order is the United States becomes convinced that its security and prosperity requires it to build out into the international order. It's always two steps forward and one step back with us. We're always unhappy about it. Allies never do enough. Multilateral institutions always constrain us more than they should. Those are natural tensions. What President Trump has done brilliantly is ask first order questions that if people like me were really good at my job, Americans would know the answer to, right? So. Why don't allies do more for themselves? Isn't trade stealing our jobs? Aren't immigrants taking our jobs? Mm -hmm. And But what I think you see in the two years of Trump's presidency is that he asks great first order questions that start a conversation, the result of which is the American public by and large revalidating what have been Amer largely American policies since 1945. So if you look at the data that the Chicago Council on Global right. Affairs right. collects, for example, ally Americans like our allies with newfound fervor. Americans now think trade makes them more prosperous personally. Uh, Americans now like immigrants more mm -hmm. than they have. So you see the president asking for starter questions about things that Americans have always been ambivalent about, um, even as we have been the real setter and enforcer of the order. But then 
finding that we don't have a better solution. We can't build a better international order much as we would like to. We would love to trade allies in for better allies. We just can't find any better allies. Um, so you see a reversion to the mean yeah. in attitudes as people, as my mom thinks her way through right. this. So then I'm going to I'm going to turn to Art in a second, but just to stretch it out a wee bit, Corey. So then, what's the problem with Trump? I mean, if people are reacting and saying, "No, no," actually, I like multilateralism and I like multilateral trade. I've heard Trump da da da, and the numbers go up then for support. So then, what is the really serious and vociferous reaction? To Collateral Trump? damage okay. is the problem with the way Trump is doing it. We are not the only people whose attitudes about this matter. The genius of the international order that the United States built out of the ashes of World War II mm -hmm. was that it legitimated American power by, by embedding it in institutions at, or creating rules and embedding those rules in institutions that in which participation is voluntary. People opt into the system because they want the prosperity and they want the freedoms, one or the other or both, that we have and can't find another way to get there. So the cost to the United States of creating and sustaining the order is much lower when people think well of us, when people believe that our values are driving our behavior, when people believe we are not reckless with their security or their prosperity. And President Trump is all of those things. So it's the threat he poses to those fundamental aspects of It's the recklessness with it's which... The style. The it's style the has consequences. So, style, yeah. 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 so it, it, to me, I think when we actually look at him carefully, there's one question we have to answer, which I'll get to in a sec. Okay. But we're really troubled by the style, the belligerence, the, mm. the personalistic attacks, the raising issues at the presidential level, renegotiating NAFTA would have been easy. You have lower level people, you task them, no one even knows that they're meeting, they come back with something, and instead the president tweets about uh, Canadian dairy policy, and you know, in contrast to, to the data you um, pointed to, there's data that all of a sudden people in Wisconsin think less well of Canadians. They now have a view of uh, that's less friendly to Canadians. And I gather there's been someone who's been taking these kinds of polls in the Midwest for a long time. And there's real fallout from his style, from his personally attacking Trudeau. You, you, that has substantive implications, even if at the end of the day, you've got a marginally different NAFTA, which he had to relabel as an exercise in self-promotion. And... Um, and achieved it with a lot of collateral damage. And it, a lot of it is the style. Uh, some of it is, I think, the incoherence. But I, uh, the question, if I can pose another question, to me the, the core question about Trump is whether we see him as attacking the system. So some people have said he's attacking the notion of democracy promotion, he's attacking allies, he's attacking international institutions, he hates trade organizations. Do we see him as doing that, or do we see him trying to renegotiate the terms that this is not beggar thy neighbor of the 30s, this is trying to 
restrain neo-mercantilism, reconfigure sort of the, the, the degree of neo-mercantilist policies we'll each adopt. And, but his way of doing it generates tremendous damage to those very institutions. But, but it, it could be that he actually wants to destroy all those things and he's en route. But the alternative is that you want to sort of renegotiate the terms of the liberal order, which people have talked about over the years, and his way of going about it is doing great damage. I, I would go deeper. I don't think it's just style. I mean, I think you think it's substance. Yeah, but and, and so no, our subject isn't what he's doing to the American political system and undermining norms and institutions in some fundamental ways, like if the next president lies twenty percent of the time to improve it. Uh, those are really deep, but that's not our subject. But but in the in the international area, I think a little bit what Art was saying um, in the latter part, which it's an assertive nationalism that believes I'm going to pursue my national interest, <clears throat> irrespective of the costs and other fallout to the rest of you. Mm-hmm. Now that's not you know in a, in an interdependent world, interconnected world, for any country to do that. It's very problematic. I mean, even the you know Belt and Road Initiative for the Chinese is saying, look, you're getting some benefits. We think we're getting more, and we're going to manipulate them. But it's not just saying, you know, it's all about our interests. And so, you know, to say that other presidents did this or that, you know, it's like saying the second baseman for the Toronto Blue Jays hits three home runs, so he's a home run hitter like Aaron Judge, right? You know, it's not not quite the same same thing. So I, I think that you know there have been elements there, and and I do think, as, you, as I think you all know. That the liberal order, uh, you know, had, you know, had deep problems before Trump. That's what produced Trump. That's what produced Brexit. So the notion that somehow, oh, the liberal order was what we really need going forward. You know, we'll get to that. But I, I think that the way he's doing it, fundamentally, you know, externalize the costs, impose the costs, mm-hmm. and I don't give a hoot what that does to others or what it does to other deals. It, the irony is, it's a transactionalist. I think the Chinese are playing him really well. You know, sure. You know, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll you know, we'll deal with these steel tariffs, uh, and that'll deflect you from intellectual property, right, and technology transfer, uh, and, and a variety of other things. We'll so, give you a slew of Trump trademarks. Yeah, exactly. You know, and uh, you know, Saudis do the same thing. You know, we'll promise you 110 billion dollars worth of arms sales, and we'll only make four. And when you leave, we'll kick Qatar out of the GCC, where you, by the way, have a major air force base, and. You know, and so I think as, as a transactionalist and somebody gives a deal, he actually is counterproductive to the American interest. But what he's doing is not just the way he's doing it. It's what he's doing substantively. Although, you know, it, it is interesting. My trade buddies, and I work with a slew of these guys in trade policy, we, we lovingly call the New Deal, which is not yet approved between the, the NAFTA parties, as you schmucka. Uh, which just about fits, because if you look at the substance of the changes, they're not significant. That was a branding exercise. It was a branding exercise. There were some changes on automobiles, on content, etc. But overall, many of the areas you, you would have thought might have been modernized on digital, and on intellectual property, blah, blah, blah. Almost nothing. Uh, so... What I hear from Ottawa is they think uh, it's not going to pass Congress. Right? Well, it may I think not. That's right. Congress, yeah. Yeah. Congress is actually going to leave NAFTA in place. Yeah. Right. So it's that's such a high level. Well, they may or may not because mm-hmm. he'll threaten mm-hmm. to abrogate. So then it becomes an interesting. Right. Bernie cannot easily, right? There's a lot. Of, uh, there are lots of issues around it, and we won't <laughs> go into the substance, but I have no doubt he will threaten to abrogate if they don't approve the New Deal. Because, again, that's part of 
his style. He's very, you know, he, he'll double down. And that's one thing we've seen about him, that he often doubles down on an issue. And that would be one way to double down, uh, to threaten abrogation. He will go to court, right? <laughs> well, lots, lots of things go to court. Um, but so, you know, not caring about the, the style, that, 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 not caring about the consequences is, I think, what you were suggesting. This is really uh, part of the problem that he poses to those of us who are interested in foreign policy and foreign policy making. Um, I, I want to underscore Bruce's point. I think it's really, really important okay. that uh, the recklessness about consequences for others and the bare-knuckled use of American power, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. what made the liberal order so cost-effective for the United States was that by voluntarily limiting right. our... The Eikenberry kind of proposition, right? The it limitation. Really, it matters because mm -hmm. other people buy into the system for that reason. It drives down the long-term cost. Um, and what President Trump is doing is reversing that dynamic so it will drive up the longer term costs. Mm -hmm. Sorry, Eve, you so going to jump in. So on the positive side, just to add up, uh, the, the positive of Trump was to ask the, the, a few big questions and break the inertia on, for example, why so many uh, former workers or workers have been losing, right? So many people have been losing. So that's an open question, and that's how he won the election. Also, question on Russia reset or North Korea reset. So there were some interesting questions there, which did put momentum. Right? Now, on the negative side, I see four long-term problems that are very, very deep. The first one we just mentioned is domestic institutions and the erosion of democratic institutions. Lots of books have been written about this, Yashka Munk and many others. Uh, and, um, you know, the fact, for example, to start with, that he said he might not have recognized the election if he had lost, right? And he would have incited violence. I mean, those, those are unprecedented in U.S. democracy. Mm -hmm. And it's a bad example across the world. The second is the erosion of the international institutions. And, um, you know, it's really, there's this battle that goes back to Wilson and, and all the way on, that is to stop the might is right approach in international relations before it's too late, when we know the balance, even Kissinger says the balance of power approach would lead to destruction of the world. He says it himself. Uh, so there's been this huge effort to build another approach with institutions, with law. And Trump is going back all the way. He goes to the UN and says, this is all nothing. I'm just here to use power and nationalism. So he's bringing us back 100 years before to basically 1914. And, and that, that has long-term damage because... First of all, the WTO may not survive. Pascal Lamy yesterday, uh, last week in Berlin said, we're not sure at this point if the US side is playing for, you know, reform or playing dirty for the destruction of the WTO. Uh, wow. So, you know, he said publicly, the former director general, there's a bunch of institutions like this that haven't yet been destroyed, but could be within the next two years or six years. And so that's a big problem. Third, he has opened a Pandora box for security hawks. People like John Bolton and Pence, etc., and we could well stumble into a crisis in Taiwan because some of those new hawks don't realize that Taiwan is the Achilles heel that can that can launch a war. Uh, and then finally, um, there is the assault on the dignity of others because he has insulted so many people around around the world. First, within the U.S., but people can forgive at home. But insulting so many people abroad, you know, it, I could see it in Japan. The Japanese feel absolutely furious 
and insulted. And this is the number one ally for the U.S. Those have long-term impact. Because uh, if people lose their sense of dignity, that's the worst that can happen. So this is, this is a lot of collateral damage. Right? Mm-hmm. So following up on, mm-hmm. uh, on, on Bruce's point in particular, mm-hmm. I, I went back and reread uh, your piece from uh, 2018, right? Uh, the liberal order isn't coming back. What's next? And you you describe what the liberal order is, and you um, write, as you've described here today, this notion that the strain was there already. It wasn't something that Donald Trump invented. It was already there in the liberal order. But then the question becomes, okay, so if, as you wrote, uh, the system may not work well enough for the 21st century, uh, what, Bruce, do you see as needing to be put in place to make the liberal order more resilient, to make it more uh, reflective of, you know, the multilateral system. Yeah, and, you know, I'm not going to do a cop-out, like, to working on it kind of thing, but I am going to, you know, this is a complicated question, right? But I'll say a couple things there. One is, um, uh, you know, first of all, I think in terms of the international economic system, it's going to be a hybrid. Okay. Right, it's going to have some of the elements and practices and norms that come out of the way Chinese do their economy, and some of the norms that come out of the West, because the 2007 financial crisis, and I suspect you have a sense of this from Asia, you know, we in the United States grossly underestimate the lessons that others learn from that. Okay, mm-hmm. you know, so the so the United States that had been the the engine driving the global economy became you know the driver that wrecked it. Right. And so I think there have been some fundamental changes about, about what exists. And moreover, while we have done a lot of things based on sort of eigenvalue mutuality, you know, the whole international trading system, right? You know, we had the long-term agreements that limited textiles and shoes, anything yes. that caused a problem for us. So it wasn't like, so I think what evolves is going to be a mix, number one. Number two, I think, is the, the argument that I think you were, you were saying is sort of what my colleague Steve Weber calls the Tina argument. There is no alternative. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and the logic of that is, well, we really know an order centered around the United States doesn't work. We haven't really thought of an alternative. Therefore, this must be best for the United States and best for the world. And, and, there, and, and, and that just can't possibly hold. Right. The nature of power has changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the trends in the world. You know, what I also call in that piece, the pluralization of diplomacy, that it's very different than any other period we've studied historically, right? In the late 19th century, seven countries got around a table and they said, you get this, you get that, and we'll try to work it out, and maybe we'll have common. This is a truly global system mm-hmm. where you have countries pursuing their own national interests. Very few countries want to sign up for one team or the other, right? If you're Turkey, you have a national interest that has some relations with the United States, some relations with Russia. Mm-hmm. If you're Saudi Arabia... China is your largest trading partner, not just for buying your oil, but for imports. Uh, if you're Israel, Bibi Netanyahu is going back and forth to Russia more than he comes to mm-hmm. Washington. Uh, and you can go on on Brazil and the Philippines. And so as you think about that way, the notion of this world like Ptolemy's world with the United States at the center mm. and everything revolves around it, it, that's not the way power is distributed or interests are distributed. So the answer to the question has to be some other form uh, and I think the hardest question for folks who, um, you know, believe in international institutions is a tough love question, right? The reality is international institutions have underperformed, right? 
you know, and you disaggregate some have done better than others. You know, the Gates Foundation did more in the Ebola crisis than the World Health Organization, yes. right? Did, yeah. right? Yeah. UN peacekeeping has its strengths and weaknesses. Right. So for those that really believe in international institutions and that kind of global governance that this new order needs, in addition to the roles of major powers, it's not enough to say John Bolton hates them, we like them. We've got to figure out how to make them work better. And that's part of the answer to your question, right? So it, it's sort of, that's where a lot of our thinking, research, policy discussions need to go to think about what comes next. And, um, and it's not, you know, but I don't think, it's not just the liberal order with a few tweaks. It mm-hmm. really isn't. That, the, that, that as I talk about in that article and a couple right. others, is, you know, this, the, the, the crumbling of the national order was happening. You know, the first, last point, the first uh, bill in the United States that, that the unions opposed the trade bill was 1974. Mm-hmm. Yes. And this has been building since then. And we've had, you know, Ross Perot, and we've had Richard Gephardt, and we've had any number of other candidates. Trump combined it with the racism. Yeah. Right? Uh, and, um, uh, and, and, and if you look at the cost, you know, the, the equality curves in the United States since the mid-1970s, you know, the gap of income inequality has been getting wider. So all these things were happening while the so-called liberal order that we thought was so great pre-Trump was in place. Okay. So, and I'm going to call on even a sec, but there seems to be at least two aspects. One is kind of power reconfiguration and the impact that power reconfiguration has. Uh, and then the institutional question I noted, and I want to come back to it. You know, you, you seem to be focusing on, on formal institutions, uh, WTO, um, UN, etc. But, you know, we've seen the growing up, and it's something I focus a lot on, what I call the rise of the informals. And you can see going back into the 1970s that you have uh, these leader, particularly these leader-led institutions, the G7, the G8, and the G20, they've come along and they've had um, um, a role or roles. Um, so there are institutional questions that you can focus it's on. It's not just that. I have a section there about NGOs. And yes, you do. For all your listeners, you know, I recommend there's a wonderful book called The Peacemakers, Leadership Lessons from 20th Century Statesmanship. Who wrote it, Bruce? I, don't, I think someone in this room did it. Someone else in this room posted it in London, right? That's <laughs> a, but the point is I, there's a chapter in there what I call Philanthropy Statesmanship and looks at the role without over-glorifying it, the Gates Foundation plays. There's a chapter in there about the modern human rights movement. So it's not just formals, it's the institutional small I aspect that has So the to be non-state part of actors and, and it's how part they of the come mix. along yeah. and they the sub-state the actors. Uh, yeah. yeah, and yeah. In, in the meeting we had today on the liberal order, that clearly that question was raised on that. Yeah. Sorry, if you wanted Can to I do a quick in? respectful pushback okay. uh, defending the liberal order's resilience. Uh, we, you know, if I bring my comparative political economy hat, on issues of performance, uh, managing globalization, mediating globalization, making sure that the benefits are shared, the U.S. is simply the worst performing OECD country, where uh, losers are punished and winners are rewarded because of regulatory capture in the democratic system. And so, you know, why is Sweden doing very well in the liberal order? Why is Switzerland doing well? Why, you know, so many countries are doing well and even Japan is doing okay. The U.S. has the worst record of that interface. We know from political economy or from IP that globalization creates new uh, new opportunities and new winners, and it has to be balanced at the domestic level. Congress, since at least since '95, but even earlier, 
keeps punishing the losers and rewarding further the, the, the winners. In turn, that creates the situation that sure. elects Trump. That's a U.S. made, a completely U.S. domestic politics problem. And we then blame the global order for it. Um, so I wanted to see, hear you okay. back on Arthur, you had a thought? <laughs> yeah, so uh, <laughs> I, I agree. So on some issues, you can, the, the liberal order <laughs> is problematic. You can see pushback in a, in a variety of places. But for some things, I, I, I would argue that there may be no alternative. In the following sense, the economies of scale required for security mm-hmm. transcend countries. Um, you can't, you're not going back to a world of the 30s in which the British, the French, the Germans, everyone's providing for their own security. This, the, the sheer economies of scale that are required, I mean, you're going to have something like uh, a NATO alliance, even if it's only implicit, even if it's weaker, even if it doesn't do out-of-area operations and all sorts mm-hmm. of other things. And the economies of scale for the global for economic production transcend countries. So the possibility of economic self-sufficiency doesn't exist. So, you know, there's good, um, there are good reasons why the U.S. adopted sort of with tweaks a British set of rules from the 19th century in constructing the post-World War II order. And, you know, it's kind of interesting to see uh, she going to Davos and and exclaiming that they you know they were the great defenders of the global trading order, but you understand that global trade is essential to the survival of the Chinese economy. It's not going to be a closed economy, and that's going to require certain things of them. So there there are clearly going to be accommodations, and the 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 regime is weaker in some places. I mean. We're talking about Trump. The plate, the norm that Trump has most violated, we think of um, the liberal order, is the the argument of not accepting territorial change through the use of force. Right, and uh, and that's a huge event, and is an unambiguous norm of the system that no one has. You know that actors have violated, like Russia taking Crimea, but no one has accepted it, and so. But otherwise, there are certain... And now you were, you're speaking of the Golan Heights. Yeah, right? the Golan Heights, yeah. And the American determination to accept Yeah, sovereignty. and so there are requisites for um, economic exchange and security that entail certain implications. And around those, things can get tweaked in lots of ways, but... Uh, so I have a question for everybody. Do you think China can continue to grow more prosperous and powerful without liberalizing? I especially want to know your answer to it. Well, absolutely. And let me put this in context because you recently wrote America versus the West. Can the liberal or world order be preserved? And in that book, uh, in that book, you... I haven't got a recent book for him to quote. This is terrible. <laughs> in that book, you said... A stalling authoritarian China is surely the greatest threat to the liberal order without American leadership. So I wanted you to kind of react to that because you seem to at least contemplate the idea of rising competition and rivalry between the United States and China in the context of an authoritarian state and particularly one where the economy begins to go south. 
So the argument that the Chinese Communist Party used to legitimate their control of the country is that they are bringing prosperity and that prosperity cannot be brought without the party. Chinese Party control of the country. <coughs> um, that's a testable proposition. Mm -hmm. uh, I am an unreformed Hegelian. I genuinely believe it is true that as people grow more prosperous, they grow more politically demanding. Um, and I think we may already be seeing the signs of that in China. In authoritarian societies, it's very hard to tell until you do the forensics after the fact. Um, but I think you begin to see fingerprints of it. I may have mentioned that my favorite expenditure of my tax dollars in the last 20 years was the Obama administration's ambassador in China, Gary Luck, posting on the U.S. Embassy website the oh, air quality yeah, right. index. <laughs> yeah, climate. It cost us nothing. It forced the Chinese government into a debate with their own public about things the public valued that the government didn't. Mm -hmm. And it forced accountability and responsibility. And I actually, I am a lot less worried about a successful China because I think for China to continue to grow more successful, it will have to grow more accountable. And, and that means it's going to be a country, a normal country in the liberal international order. What I'm worried about is if China, if the prosperity stalls, um, I think the Chinese government's already hedging against it by trying to ramp up nationalism. I think they're already ramping against it by, it's not clear to me the extent to which the Chinese military is actually under political control mm -hmm. as opposed to being bought into the system by being given latitude. So I actually, I'm a lot more worried about a failing China than I am about a, a successful China. China. Okay. Eve, what's your thoughts? So several points. First, I will agree with two, two uh, early points here that, uh, well, the PM 2.5, completely right. That had huge impact, uh, not the Gary Lock thing. Also on the military side, actually, I also worry about this. And the dog climb crisis with India, the signs that we got afterwards is that it it may have happened uh, autonomously from the PLA. And in fact, we know that Xi Jinping was furious about it. It nearly destroyed the BRICS summit. He had to backtrack, lose face, and he fired two generals in September after that mm -hmm. uh, that were ranked four and five what for corruption. The, what was the issue? That the, 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 they built a road where they had never had a road before, and the Indian government went... Okay. No, and they moved their troops. Yeah. So the PLA thought you could just advance the road within the one kilometer okay. zone. It was on the Bhutan side, so indirect, okay. not straight to India. But they broke an agreement to do nothing within the one kilometer zone. And they did quietly, apparently with the PLA on its own, uh, without, as far as I've heard from sources, that as far as we know, uh, it may have happened, you know, on its own, you know, without ah. control. And we know that she was furious and two, the rank number four and five were fired and, you know, dismissed one as died in actually by suicide or by heart attack afterward. Uh, in any case, <laughs> and the South China Sea too, because clearly they were pushing Hu Jintao to build those islands. Yeah. He kept saying no because the cost would be high. She gave yes, but it's not certain that he saw the whole plan because they seem to have splurged, right? Mm. The massive size, right? I, I don't know if he knew every detail, right? Because then it becomes a threat to the US. It attracts the US. Um, anyway, so those are things on which I agree. Now, on the trajectory of China and the economy, there's two caveats to say, and then I'll partially agree with you, but the two caveats, 
First to remember is 1993, the World Bank East Asia Miracle Report, which made a whole uh, debate, etc. But the data from this, so that we know from Roderick, we know from uh, uh, Hajun Chong and Kicking the Ladder, we know that the best performing countries in terms of long-term development, long-term growth, have not been the Washington Consensus countries, have been sort of hybrid economies, mm -hmm. where there is a strong state that's uh, mediating the market imperfections and that's helping the process you know, to, to invest capital efficiently. Uh, and uh, in a way, the UK did this in the 19th century. That's Polanyi's book. Uh, the Germans did it. The French did it. So uh, Japan did it, of course. So there's... Oh, and, you know, to some extent, the U.S. government did intervene much more in the 19th century, in the early 20th century. So that's the agential argument. We, we want to imagine now a free market world, but the actual industrial transition requires strong mediation yeah. by the government. Sure. And they're still in that transition. So in that <coughs> sense, they do need some elements, right? But it's afterwards a matter of dosage because too much is bad too. Uh, the, the second caveat to keep in mind is the middle class is a minority in China. Uh, you know, it's maybe 25%, 30%. And so we're in an Aristotelian sort of dilemma, maybe a Thailand example, you know, where the majority, the majority is poor, 70% of red shirts. And Bangkok, uh, you know, the yellow shirts, <laughs> they, they don't want real democracy because we, real democracy redistributes away from them to the poor peasants. And so the middle class today doesn't want democracy because the poor will take power and we'll put property taxes on the middle class. So that's the trick of the current government is to get the middle class on its side by pampering the middle class. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, they get some time that the middle class is not switching until the middle class is the majority. And then we're in a different ballpark. So that's something to always keep yeah. in mind. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. I, I, just, you know, I think that um, some, you know, I think that the, it seems that you know, for some I think the, the success China's had economically mm -hmm. up to this point reminds me of the success the Soviets had with heavy industry, right? Mm -hmm. In the 50s and the 60s. They were really good at that, their system was. And then they weren't so good at the next stage of economic mm -hmm. development. Mm -hmm. I think that's mm -hmm. one of the challenges maybe that mm -hmm. you're raising and you're speaking to. So those are but, just my caveat so far. <laughs> yeah. That's right. But, but yeah, I think that this yeah. question of, you know, if we think right. of the state and the market along a continuum right. and right. not a dichotomy, right. we get much more at where, where countries right. want to put, put their... Put their uh, combinations together because it seems to me it's not, you know, countries and not just China but other countries. You know, the the two criteria are: does a political system have internal legitimacy, and that's not always a function of elections, right? And secondly, does it deliver? You know, does the arrow point in the right direction for the issues most important to key segments of the population? And so I think this hybrid. I mean, to me, G is making two mistakes. You know, fundamentally, one is the internal incredible degree of repression that he's imposing, you know, whether it's the Uyghurs in the West or taking the passports away from, you know, university professors. The latest thing I was reading this morning, somebody got fired at Tsinghua, who, you know, was a law professor or something. You know, and I think that if you try for too much control, you know, it backfires. There's an equilibrium point in different societies. And I feel that way externally, too. You know, to the extent, I mean, China's getting a certain amount of pushback on Belt and Road and others. In Africa and elsewhere, which is along the lines of, wait a second, you know, we like some terms of the deal, but we had the European colonialists, and we had the American and Soviet imperialists. You know, we're really not ready. We really don't want somebody to come in and totally try to dominate our country. And so there's, there, you know, there's a tipping point, and I think the United States has run into that too. You know, there's a tipping point beyond which you seek to extend your power and your influence and your leverage, that it, start, it starts to backfire. And I think that that's some of the issues. To the extent that China becomes more aware of them, 
I think it creates possibilities for mutuality, you know, in, in U.S.-China relations. To the extent that there are factions like the military, you know, bureaucratic politics that don't, you know, then, then it's much more problematic. But I, I don't necessarily see it evolving. And then you look and say, tell me again what's working well in the West, right, in mm -hmm. terms of your political systems, right? I mean, the whole pattern across, you know, you know, really most of the advanced industrial economies, you know, where you have, you know, I mean, even in, in, in Denmark, which is a nice social democracy, the second largest party in parliament is an anti-immigrant party. You know, Sweden is, a, you know, is a right of center party. Um, our political system is having trouble with policy, right? We go three steps forward, five steps backward, you know, or, you know, however you want to define it, Republican or Democrat. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that it necessarily evolves towards the democratic model. I do believe there has to be some you know, source of, of, of a degree, whether you call it, you know, a loosening or, or, or liberalization that allows the society to breathe. But I don't necessarily think it goes towards, you know, uh, you know, sort of our model economically or politically. Well, of course, in that advanced economy kind of perspective, the, the, you know, the Swedens and so forth, it's not just an economic inequality. No. Issue because clearly they don't have that. No. They've really got it's support structures, okay. but it's an identity issue. Sure. Immigration has been a tremendous has had a tremendous yeah. impact on societies like Sweden, like mm -hmm. Denmark. So, notwithstanding, you know their efforts to uh, maintain the economic well-being, mm -hmm. you have that other problem, and it's been a very difficult one. It's not resolved in Europe at all. Right. So we got a two-headed problem here. I want to hear the end of the chat. So yeah, I want to ahead. give the argument, the answer to Corey's question. So in the end, I do agree that they will have to liberalize. And it's just a matter of timing. It doesn't have to be, you know, in two years or in five years. But they're at a critical juncture, right? Because you can do, there's so many steps in the process of development and modernization. They're reaching, you know, eight, nine dollars thousand dollars per capita. They're going to need institutional upgrade, you know, more you know, higher education, etc. They need the openness. And so currently there is that really interesting moment where they, they fear more the social fragmentation first. And so they're closing. Indeed, there is a repressive moment. We don't know if it's long term or if it's just an inflection point. I talked to a lot of Chinese sources. They think it's just an inflection point in a long process and we shouldn't overreact. By the way, the, the Uyghurs or you know, arrest of lawyers, it's cheered by the majority. So it's a question of minority rights. It's not a question of lack of legitimacy. And in fact, any sign so far is she is widely popular. The anti-corruption campaign is widely popular. The anti-Uyghur is 99% popular among the Han, the Han Chinese. It's a bit like Guantanamo Bay, but it's even more support. Uh, so, you know, because they, they, they see them as terrorists. It's a very large one. Yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, six million people, but it's a problem of minority rights. It's not a problem of legitimacy with the public, the rest of the public. Um, but the, the issue is they have now the model has gone too far, right? Even though they have some logic behind it, you can't have 30% of the economy with SOE at this point. You know, they went from 18% to 30% between 2009 and now. That's too far. They do need to push it back. And in that sense, that's maybe where the Trump negotiation is helpful. They need that, right? And they need the upgrade on the IP. And they need the, you know, there's a bunch of things that are critical for China to do now to not be in trouble. Uh, and so that's the biggest blessing of the current negotiations. Mm -hmm. uh, but it can't, it doesn't have to go all the way either. It's going to be a gradual process. And there are pitfalls in going fully. And, and the public so far doesn't demand. The, the public is very 
suspicious of a full free market because for them it's the Asian crisis, it's the global financial crisis, it's, and, it, and, and the middle class so far is suspicious of democracy at this point. But in 20 years, it will be different. It's a long process. Yeah, mm -hmm. but, but remember, mm -hmm. you know, with the state-owned enterprises in China, and our good friend Nick Lardy from the Peterson Institute yeah, made yeah. very clear mm -hmm. that, the, that the support for the state-owned enterprises, which is the most inefficient mm -hmm. elements of the Chinese economy, is uh, really a serious problem for them if you know, the private sector is really squeezed out without funding in, in China. And I have every reason to believe the Chinese leadership understands that because they know what's efficient and not efficient within, within the Chinese economy, but they've made a, cho a political choice with respect to the party and the relationship to the state-owned enterprises. Right, and they're very worried about the Japanese story. There's so many papers on the Japanese 1980s, 1990s precedent. And they are like looking two million times at the Plaza Accord and the yen dollar agreement of 1984. And they think this is what destroyed Japan. Hmm. And so for finance, they want to keep the SOE for control reasons. And, and they, they don't want, they think the Americans can destroy them through finance, the way they destroy the Japanese. So that's the key story. So the banks, that's very sensitive, right? Uh, on other on manufacturing, I think they're going to get the point that but it's true that you have, you know, you have the Shambo argument, you have the Minster argument. They're very worried right now about losing control. And they think they're in danger because the U.S. pressure is enormous. So actually there's mutual threat, right? It's, and it interacts with each other. We feel threatened by the Chinese. The Chinese are very threatened by America right now. And that makes them tighten up. Uh, they, they can't, they think they can't afford fragmentation, social pluralism when they're on the threat, when they could be attacked when there could be an aircraft carrier in Taiwan from the U.S. That's and it, it really helps strengthening control. Well, throw it into the bigger mm -hmm. frame, because I know you've become rather enamored <laughs> with Christopher Clark's examination of the First World War, the, right. uh, the book he wrote, The Sleepwalkers, right. uh, how Europe went to war in 1914. And you've raised the concern, uh, as in 1914, that none of the leaders wanted war. You've raised Taiwan as an example, by the way. The current contemporaneously. Mm -hmm. So none of the leaders wanted war, certainly not the war they got, which was devastating and they had no real understanding of that. Nevertheless, war was the outcome of the crisis. So how seriously do you think that that particular uh, model may, may explain or be concerned with respect to the United States and China? So the, the Sleepwalkers book and this, sorry, this 1914 moment is hugely important. In fact, it was emphasized by Angela Merkel, by President Macron, and by uh, Guterres at the Paris Peace Forum in November. They all quoted the same book. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, in fact, Europe, I, I grew up in France, World War I completely shaped uh, everybody's life and history, by my own family. Um, and what's horrifying, the more I read about it, the more you realize it was a mistake. You know, the leaders goofed up, right? They, they failed. And over 39 days, the five great powers and two, three smaller ones uh, got caught up into a cycle of interactions filtered by their own uh, beliefs and a lot of misperceptions. They kept having misperceptions about each other. And the cycle of interactions and misperceptions led to war. Uh, plus some automatic things like mobilization of the army and that kind of stuff right. that accelerated that the final the technical aspects. the final stuff. 
And, <clears throat> and that aspect could well happen. The majority of Americans don't know that if an aircraft carrier goes to Taiwan, they will be warped by law. China is bound by law to, to declare war. Uh, and Taiwan is completely central to the legitimacy of the leadership. And if she doesn't do it, it will be killed within three days or something. Uh, every leader has said it time and again, and there's a law in the book. Uh, it, and people forget, right? People forget what is the trigger point of the other side. Meanwhile, however, what Bruce Jones just wrote, the report, I think is wrong. The Chinese don't care about democracy. Uh, just so the audience yeah. knows, Bruce Jones yeah. is, at, is at the uh, Brookings Institute. The Brookings, the democracy and right. order crisis. Yes. The Chinese don't give a damn to democracy in other places. They're completely focused on their own trajectory. The more I speak with Chinese leaders, the more you see they're caught in a 200-year trajectory which really went wrong. You know, that modern, the entry to modernity went wrong. In a way, this is the best government they have over 150 years. You know, everything else before was worse. They hope to keep improving, but they, they don't care too much about changing other people, right? But they're very inward, very, very inward focused. So to think that they're out there to destroy democracy elsewhere, that's wrong. I think this is a wrong, it's another misperception. But to believe that they're, are not focused on their trajectory and they're willing to take certain price, including Taiwan will always come before their own prosperity, for example. It's number one in their ranking. Uh, that would also be wrong. We have to understand each other right? uh, to, to be able to play chess. So in mm. my two bits on World War mm-hmm. One, which I, I, can't, <laughs> I can't resist giving. So I think um, uh, when you look at uh, works on World War One, that you a lot of them overemphasize the crisis right beforehand right. and the decision-making right beforehand. And the thing that I always found interesting about World War mm-hmm. One is the, those countries faced a series of crises en route to the war, and they were able to manage them until that last one. And to me, the real danger, it, and I made this picture as regards U.S.-China relations, is we're going to have crises. We're going to manage them. The question is going to be what inferences do, and in a lot of cases, we won't have dealt with the underlying problems. So we'll have managed the short-term crisis. And then the question is what inferences do the parties draw uh, on the, the particular form of crisis resolution? And when you get two parties that feel that they didn't fare so well and say never again, then you're in real trouble. And, uh, and in fact, the paper you wrote, one yes, of the papers yeah. you wrote. We have to get in, talk, I wrote a paper yeah, also. That, that, <laughs> talked, that talked about the iteration yeah. of crises starting yeah. at around 1908. Yeah. And going forward, the lesson learned was, well, here was this crisis, and we didn't end up in war. So, it's okay. so everybody this again. took the proposition that they would not end up in war. Yeah. Right. Unfortunately, in 1914, the dynamics were different, yeah. and they did end up It's in a war. lesson the Americans learned after Cuba. We know crisis management. Right. We know how to run crises and win. Right. Yeah, it's the, Let me just say on, on the two things you've said, one of the dangers is the timeline. Um, uh, economic development and growth is an S-curve. And there are certain points where you're on the rocket ship going up and you think it's going to continue that way. And it invariably plateaus. Those rates aren't sustainable. And we're clearly seeing that in the Chinese case. They've squeezed out the quick, rapid growth that you can get. And the problem is, as they flatten out, Eve's argument, which is correct, which is, and I mean, 
I, I don't want to quote academic social science, but the, the, standard mo- the standard model basically says the emergence of democracy requires a certain degree of equality. That excessive inequality means the elites are not willing to give up power, and it requires the elites being willing to give up power and being willing to accept transitions and peaceful mm-hmm. transitions and so on. And that requires a minimal degree of equality. And if you have a plateauing of Chinese growth at the same time that you do not have a a relatively equal system, the prospects for a a certain kind of liberalization are not great. That's a really nice point. You know, it's it's interesting. First of all, I hear echoes of Dick Rosecrans in this room with all the conversation. (laughs) Certain people have been trained by him. And I, you, know, you see that Peter Jackson movie is a must-see, the one, you know, the documentary on, on World War One. World War Brilliant, brilliant. But, work. you know, I'm just thinking, I, I think your analysis of, of China was so valuable to those that's not China's specialists. I just think that, for, you know, the way the United States, our policy leaders, and often our academics approach this is we forget the basic thing of know thy adversary, know thy competitor. Mm-hmm. We want to interpret China's intentions and actions uh, in the frame that we we think, oh, this must be. First of all, we, we're more familiar with the deterrence model than the spiral model, right? Because it's where more, you know, we felt like we were, you know, we we had very little familiarity with World War One, right? Kind of came into it. Uh, but I think it's so important to say, and it doesn't necessarily justify or make threat perceptions any less. It tends to make them though a more accurate analysis, and we have a tendency so much to impute motives, intent, and models. And I think it's that semi-ideological nature of, of, of American foreign policy, you know, that, that we do that. Rather than rather than understand what the dynamics are in China, then figure out what that means for us, what's a threat and what's not, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and it's really, you know, I think we do that, you know, we can talk about any number of countries in which we, you know, have failed to do that do that accurately. And, and I think it's really crucial in this situation so that if you imagine... Um, you know, a real summit. And it can't happen with this president. But, you know, one of my beefs has been, and this is not just a Trump commentary, you know, the Kissinger and Joe and Lai talks went on for days and they were deep. And they mm-hmm. talked about a range of factors and they built a certain amount mm-hmm. of respect and trust mm-hmm. and they, they understood the uh, relationship between transformation of the relationship and the transactional and each side ultimately compromised. You know, summits today, this is true of Obama, it was true of Bush, you know, forget about Trump. I mean, he does, he does, you know, drive by summit, you know, they're talking points. You come across the table and the leaders, you know, every, you know, have these talking points. And, and when you're dealing with relationships with countries that have been adversaries or competitors, they're not familiar, you really need to have a different kind of interaction, you know? And, and I think in us China relations, Kissinger, I, when I was interviewing him for, for the book I was writing, it was right after the Sunnyvale summit with Obama. And he said to me, you know, he said, you know, that's not the way you do it. You know, to suppose they were supposed to be in a relaxed environment where they could do, mm-hmm. you know, a certain amount of discussions, you know, and that sort of things. He says that's that's not, and I think he was right about that. You know, I think about that in any number of situations. If the United States and Iran ever got to that point, you know, but but I think I think that our understanding of China is mostly putting it into the boxes, the cells that we believe are important, uh, which may or may not hold for an accurate sense of what they're thinking and what's going on. Mm-hmm. The biggest paradox, and that's where we have a misunderstanding, is that the Chinese believe that they could be illiberal at home for the moment, right? They they don't think they'll be forever. They think they're on a trajectory that may take 50 years toward a much more liberal governance. 
at least intellectual think so, but you can be liberal now because of your historical uh, duties or the, the hand you have been given, and yet be liberal abroad. That is, you can't believe in a global rules-based international order, and by and large, you have more and more, at least the international side of the government in China believes in it, while they also believe in keeping control at home. And we don't believe so, you know, here. We tend to say that you can't have both. But that's the crux today. I call this the, the Chinese liberal international order paradox. That is, they actually believe in it. What Xi Jinping said in Davos actually represents what they believe. Uh, but we just can't take it. But we have to remember that in the world history... Do you consistent with their international behavior, though? Well, I mean, no, Paris Agreement... They may believe uh, it, but... But as the example you used about the South China Sea, hmm. it's a wild violation of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, an accepted maritime practice. Uh, their intimidation of small countries on their periphery, the partial way they comply with WTO or other trading regimes. So I know they say it, hmm. but... But currently, when I do tabulations of all the global institutions... The U.S. is in more violation than China. And that's also what the Europeans have come up with, right? Iran deal, very important, and is valued by Europeans and, and Canadians. The U.S. is violating it, destroying it. It's a U.N. Uh, Paris Agreement, Cartagena Protocol on uh, Biosafety, Dagria Protocol on Biodiversity, Chemical Regulation. There's a long, long list, even peacekeeping. Uh, there's a lot of things that the Chinese are supporting and honestly supporting. Uh, and WTO, so there's, there's a few very sensitive, but we tend to have then selection bias. We pick the three or four that we are very upset about, and we ignore the 20 that the U.S. is violating meanwhile, right? Uh, I do those tables, I compare all the countries, and the, the numbers are higher on the Chinese side right now than the U.S. Right? That's interesting. And but, they're doing certain things that, yeah. that are, you know, they create a regional bank and they invite Europeans and Americans. The U.S. chose not to go. Just crazy, and the IAB is the best bank today. Yeah, absolutely, it's a, it's a perfect step. But that that was that was a bureaucratic reaction in the United States at the time, uh, and I think if this no, I, current I, president wasn't there, I think the Americans I, I, would come I back. That. On, I get that. My only the point bank. is then you can see that as an example of their commitment yes, to a multilateral yeah. funding right. institution. In which you know they're restrained from what they can impose, and in which right. others they've accepted the, the, really the rule-based right. system. Seventy-five percent of AIB loans are done together with ADB, World Bank, right. European Development Bank, right. and they have uploaded Western norms, and they did it consciously. Right. So if they have multiple products, Belt and Road is mixed, but the AIB is the best, right? That's the good one. Uh, on WTO, they their view is that they have adhered to the letter, and to some extent, it's true. But they have stretched, of course, the spirit, and they have gained way too much, and they have to now adjust, right? Well, it's it's a bit more, it's a bit stronger. <laughs> I was involved in that, in you know discussions about the WTO accession of China, and there, you know, there was a real commitment at the time that China would marketize in a much more fundamental way. But it's not tax. written. There's no percentage in the ICO. Well, it's in, it's in it part was the in spirit, the pro- right? no, it was it, in the protocol. Yeah. It was in the protocol. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not in the WTO. Uh, agreement, but it is in the protocol with China. Anyway, the the point is, you know, there was more to what 
there's more serious uh, breaches than uh, than just the WTO right. rules. It was what China agreed to do. Right. Unclose is the most serious one. That's the one that's clearly in opposition. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so the Chinese view that at least to, again to in the spirit of understanding their side, not to defend it because I <laughs> not this side, but their view is that um, there pres- there is a essential misunderstanding when they join Unclose. When it joined Enclose and they ratified in the mid 90s, uh, in the following uh, the support for the UN in general, they put a, a, an exception clause there that it would not affect their claim on sovereignty. And, and indeed, it protects their claim on the islands. But they didn't see the loophole that you could go after the zone, the maritime zone that the they. EZ. Yeah, yeah. So they, they thought they were safe, and that's yeah. on that basis that they joined Enclose. And then they got trapped, right? Because they didn't do a good homework. In fact, the government is mad at their own bureaucrats for not preempting, understanding that, right? Otherwise, they do like the Americans, stay out. But the problem is they joined. And then there's that mandatory uh, arbitration. And when they got caught into this, they, they felt, uh, you know, like it was treachery. They felt trapped. <laughs> trapped. Because the Americans who criticize them are not members anyway. Abide <laughs> by all of the terms. They, they do, and, but they have not but, become. But the place where they're going to yeah. have the biggest trouble between illiberalism yeah. at home and liberalism abroad, right, is in the digital space, right, uh, right. And that's, yeah, that's going to be this complete clash there. A complete okay. clash. Yeah. Well, great. look, I want to thank you all for mm-hmm. spending time. You had you've had a busy day at the ISA, and I've agreed to treat people to a drink. So I want to thank I want to thank you all for joining. Uh, it, it's been a lot of fun. Hopefully, uh, the audience will enjoy it as well. But thank you, Eve. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Arthur. And let's thank have you, let's go for Alan. a drink. Yeah. <laughs>